welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their great hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 166. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Hope that you are having a great week. Um, I can feel this intensity, this excitement uh, rising as I talk to my buddies, as I talk to people online, as I have guests on the show. Uh, hunting season is right around the corner for most of us. Um, some of you guys have to maybe wait until October for whitetails. I have till the end of September, but before then, I have my 10-day elk trip coming up here in about 11 days, and I am just pumped for that. I know some of you might be listening to this on your way out to a spot. Um, maybe you're, you're getting ready to put those last-minute preparations into place, hanging the stands, trimming the lanes, getting up in your saddle, shooting your bow, whatever it is. It's here, guys. It's coming. And I just hope that you are ready for it. And if you're not, you got a little bit of time. Get it all dialed in, and, man, I'm excited. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of where I'm at. I'm in this mode where I'm just balancing life and the life I live and the life I love and this uh, this mountain adventure that I get to go on here in just a few days. So very excited for that and uh, shooting the bow a lot, exercising a lot, talking to my hunting partner a lot. He's probably sick of me by now. I'm going over every ounce, every little nitpicky detail of uh, my maps and scouting want to make sure I've got backup plans for days so that I'm never left with a moment of where do I go next? Like I've always got like a, this is where we're going next because I've got a list, a list that we can never cover. Like just, uh, I'm just excited. I'll say that. And, and I think I have this time going in, um, a little bit more level head, uh, confidence, but not necessarily confidence. I'm going to kill something confidence that I think I can at least put us in the ball game. Uh, get us into the playing field, so to speak. You never know what's going to happen, um, but that's my confidence. Um, and hopefully that that's not overconfidence. Hopefully that's just realistic, and that's where we are. But anyway, uh, you didn't come to hear about me today. You came for some elk stories, or some stories, and you're going to get some elk stories today from our guest. And I tell you what, uh, some epic stories. Very, very good. Coming from Brian Krebs. And Brian is uh, from Minnesota, and he has his own podcast that he recently started called Two Bucks Podcast. And we get into that a little bit. This is a really neat idea that he has. This podcast exists to help people who want to start or have just not recently started some sort of outdoor company or out some sort of outdoor endeavor. Um, so whether it's starting a podcast like this or maybe even doing like a, a beard oil, uh, that's one of the things that Brian also does. He owns uh, Bull Elk Beard Oil. Uh, one of his things that he's um, created. And so his podcast is aimed at really trying to help people with those things, um, help them know how do you even get started? How do you chase this dream? Because sometimes that just knowing how to get started can be uh, very daunting. So he has guests on that talk about how they have done it in different areas. So definitely worth checking out. Uh, we get into some of his really cool elk stories. In fact, kind of his elk journey. Uh, he started elk hunting in 2016, has gone every year since then, hunting multiple states. And we talk about a couple of the bulls that he is able to get, including his once-in-a-lifetime hunt in North Dakota. Uh, really awesome hunt that he got to go on. So we unpack all of that. And throughout, we kind of throw in a little bit of philosophy. Um, really just kind of interesting. We, we talk about what does it mean to have the killer instinct. <laughs> and I got to admit, sometimes I don't think I've really had that and I've had to develop that. And so we talk about that. How do you, in the moment, whenever that 
animal is walking in or coming into your spot, how do you go from just flip the switch and, and have that confidence that that animal is not going to leave there? Like you are going to kill that animal. And so we unpack all of that. Excellent episode. Um, really, really enjoyed this one. Think that you guys will too. Guys, before we get into that, I want to ask you if you would leave a rating and a review. Some of you guys have done that recently. Greatly appreciate that, especially if you're listening on iTunes. Uh, helps with the algorithms, helps people know it's fresh. Make sure that you leave those ratings, reviews, all those sorts of things. Um, and if you'd like to come on the show, always looking for guests. Would love to hear your stories, especially if you had some early season early season success already. Would love to hear those. Send me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com. Or just find us on Facebook, Shedding Light Outdoors, or Instagram. Send us a private message. We'd love to connect with you and uh, hear your hunting stories. doesn't have to be elk, obviously. That's what I'm excited about right now. We can talk whitetails, muleys. We can talk bear. Anything you want to talk about, we'd love to hear that. That's my sales pitch. It's not really sales, just a pitch. And uh, now we're going to jump in. Here's our guest, Brian Krebs. All right. Well, joining me from Twin Cities is Brian Krebs. Brian, how you doing, man? Doing good. How about yourself, Travis? Man, elk season is right around the corner, and I am jacked. How about you? I'm pretty excited. I'm getting a mix of excitement and worry that I'm not ready enough. I just moved uh, over the winter, and so all my hunting stuff is still packed away in random boxes throughout the house. So I think I'm going to take a little bit extra time to pack this year. Yeah. <laughs> that's. I had that feeling like I was feeling like, man, I'm ready. I'm so ready. And then just this past week, like everything, I'm like, I have everything I need. I think I've bought everything. And then like, I start going over my game plan. I'm like, is that even going to work? Is that even a good idea? Like, am I so, am I, have I got myself sucked in? Yeah. I started second guessing like everything. So I, I relate a little bit to that worry. Yeah. Are you going to the same unit you've been in the past or a new unit? Brand new. So that's, that's the, that's part of it is that, um, every year that I've elk hunted, I've never gone back to a place I've been. Maybe I should try that. But, uh, <laughs> this time, Brand new spot, but I do have a, a guy that is from my hometown that's been there. He's talked it through with me, given me multiple like little coaching sessions on what he did. He would have gone with us, but he went to the Super Bowl instead um, to watch his Bengals lose. So, you know, uh, I think I'd choose elk hunting over over Super Bowl. But anyway, uh, yeah. So I'm gonna check out those spots. Some others. So how about you? How's the the scouting? You going back to a spot you've been? Yeah, and we're actually going back to a spot we were at last year, which. We've done, I can't call it now, eight to 10 elk hunts in the overall group. I think I was maybe missed two of them, but I did one or two on my own. And typically we're new units with a couple of favorites, but we usually have to rotate through other states before we can get back to our favorite units. Right. And so we've never been back to back in the same unit. So it's it feels like we were just there, like thinking back on all the spots I want to go. It's like, I remember everything perfectly mm-hmm. and it was a very fun unit to hunt with a rifle and we found in some great archery um, spots in there, lots of wallows and, and north facing slopes with benches and a lot of sign. We saw a lot of elk too and some really big bulls, uh, a couple three, mid threes on phone scope nice. for a general unit in Montana. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Now, are you typically just in Montana? You, well, no, you said you go into other states, right? So you're kind of on a rotation. Yeah, I've hunted North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Okay, great. Yeah. it's. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day where the guy was talking about people like to bounce around because you're always wanting adventures and see different location. But if you really want to kill elk, go back to the same area and learn that area. Like, learn where the elk are in that spot. Unless it's just, like, completely terrible, but... 
go back and kind of familiarize. And I got to thinking, I was like, Colorado, I struck out last time, but had an amazing hunt. I'm like, I already have like four or five places like lodged in my memory where it would be a great starting point to go back to. Yeah, I don't think anyone can doubt that going back to the same unit every year helps, but you do learn a lot about elk and elk hunting by going to new units all the time because you're yeah. always on the lookout for sign, your tactics change, you cover ground faster, you're you're moving and adapting quicker by mo- going to all these new units, and I think it helps you in different ways become a better elk hunter as well. Yeah, 100% agree. Yeah, I, I I've had to this time really rely. I have that buddy that's gone and he's given me some spots, but I've, I've learned don't just bank off of one person's perspective and one person's memories and, and their experience. You've got to, there's so many things that go into a hunt. So e-scouted contact a lot of other people. And um, so we'll see how it goes, man. I hope to tell some good stories and uh, hear some of yours too. So Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us your background, uh, what you do and, um, uh, also I want to dive into your podcast and talk a little bit about that here in a little bit, but kind of give us a little overview of who you are. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in West central Minnesota. Um, my parents lived on a lake, a little lake. And so I did a lot of fishing off the dock. Once I got old enough, I had a little John boat and just did a lot of fishing there. And then our family has some cousins and uncles that farm. And then we bought some adjacent land to more hunt. And so we kind of have a relatively big family farm, if you will, and so going there for deer hunting and pheasant hunting, very traditional Orange Army style uh, family growing up. And then once I was in about college, my brother started looking west a lot. He did a couple of rifle guided elk hunts with my dad while I was growing up, but then really got the bug for archery for the bugling aspect. He wasn't really even a bow hunter up until then. He bought a bow to start archery elk hunting just because you can have that calling interaction. And so he went out West a year before I got done with college. And then I've been joined the group ever since. And we try to go on an elk hunt every year. So far I've done it since 2016, one a year, one year I did two. And so it's, it's really nice. I know we talked earlier on how you're, you're doing an every three year plan just to keep family life and everything in balance. And so I'm happy that I started the every year tradition before I started a family. So now it's, it's, it's one of the uh, written in stone commandments now, I suppose. Expectations. Yeah, man. I wasn't even bow hunting whenever I got married. That happened. I started bow hunting the year I got married. So there was my wife's like, I remember a time whenever you weren't this nuts about hunting, you just hunted like one week in November, you know, during gun season. That was it. And I'm like, yeah, those, those days are long gone. Uh, Yeah, you got to definitely balance priorities and, and make sure when you come back home, you're excited to be home. Yeah. And I, I think I've, I've, I think I, you can ask my wife, but I think I've done a better job with the lead up to doing like these honeydew projects and not just doing it, you know, to gain brownie points, but because they need to be done and spend an extra time with the kids. So all that's super important if you're going to have a guilt free uh, hunt. So. Yeah. Quick tip, you know, when you're going out west, a lot of times you apply for tags in the spring. And you have to really plan out your season in like January through April, May. And so we found out early in my relationship with my fiance that I would, I would do like 10 tags a year between private land, whitetails back home, maybe a couple in North Dakota and antelope, a mule deer and elk here and there. It add up a lot and I'd have a very busy fall. And so by, you know, the holidays and the new year, I was getting tired of hunting as well. You know, I'm getting run down and ready to sleep in on a Saturday, but my, my fiance or girlfriend at the time was definitely 
ready to be done with me being gone all the time. And then the first thing we got to turn around and talk about is next year. And so it was very, it was very hard to learn. Like we need to talk about this now when we're at our, like kind of like our low in the, you know, the love bank of this hunting topic, but we got to talk about it. So we're on the same page come next yeah. fall. And so that was a one that we had to learn through. Yeah. That's wise. Very wise. I've learned the calendar is so important. Putting every date, like this is the dates the season starts. This is this date. Even if I don't plan on going that date, it's a date that there's a youth season where I might be taking a kid out, you know, and my wife can see that on there. So if she goes to plant something, she at least asks me and vice versa. So that's, that's helped us a ton in making sure it doesn't become like a surprise or anything like that. So. Yeah. Last year I built a Gantt chart. Usually every year I build a Gantt chart this year. I won't have to, cause I have a, a pretty lax schedule because I'm getting married in January. But last year I had 10 tags and my fiance and I were living two state, a state apart and she's in residency. So she worked 12 on two off or every other weekend plus the weekday. And so I committed that I would only miss one weekend of hers off for the nine day elk hunt, but the rest of the nine takes, I was juggling on weekends that she was working and during the week or vacation. So I could do all that. So I had a Gantt chart, like you said, with all the seasons and it would have a big block of when the season dates were. And then like a little block of when I planned to go. And I had other blocks of like when my fiance was available, like when she had weekends off so I could travel down and be with her. And I, I was able to do it. I only missed that one weekend for the nine day elk hunt respectable that's awesome man i had to drive through the night one time to get yeah. home in time but <laughs> <laughs> the things we do to balance it all and that's 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 the key word i think balance so yeah well brian you know you think about uh going from minnesota to being in the mountains um as you did that your first few years can you bring us through some of those stories some of those moments that you remember um, just like, what's that like? What's that experience? I know what it was like for me. What's that experience like for you kind of going uh, from where you were to, to being out West and experiencing all that? It was, it was really fun. My family has always been one that we spend a lot of our vacation days on trips, right? So we have done pheasant hunts in the past, like in Montana or every year we try to get up to Canada for a week. So that like the fact of going on a trip with the family and a car ride, is very fun, you know, road trip, road trip. But I always enjoy that time because it just seems like there's so much excitement and you're talking and and I look forward to it a lot. So that part was really fun and the planning of the trips. The first year we went out to like very northwestern Montana on an elk hunt that I went on. And I remember all the excitement and the gear and you practicing and training and everything is at peak, right? Because it's your first mm -hmm. one. And it was a lot of fun. And then as we're driving out there, it's like, man, this is awesome. It's the West. We're doing it. And we start getting closer and closer. And you start looking up the window and you start looking up higher and higher. And you're like, man, this is steep. Yeah. This is a lot steeper than it looks like on the outdoor channel. Yeah. And it was a brutal year. I mean, it was, we, we got into some good action and we bugled some bulls in, but it was so steep and so thick. I mean, we were in like a rainforest and it was, everything was like straight up. Mm. And so it was, it was a tough year. We didn't get any elk that year, but it, it definitely set the hook yeah. and got me addicted to just archery elk hunting and hunting the West for sure. Yeah. Did you guys, did you see any elk or was it kind of like a shutout year? We had good bugling. We, we had average bugling the entire week. We had four or five bulls within bow range. My, my partner took a shot but he had a small gap and he was trying to slip the needle and he, it unfortunately just hit high shoulder and he tracked that bull for a, a day and a half and determined 
he was doing great. He met up with a herd. He was doing elk things again. Blood ran out long ago. Um, didn't think that was even going to count as a flesh wound, right, with those yeah. shoulders on those things. So abandoned that. I had a bull at 40 or 50 yards. Looking back, I kicked myself. I probably should have taken the shot. There was a, a, pine, a small pine tree, like the top of a pine tree, covering his front leg. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was like, ah, I can't shoot. There's something in the way. But now that I've elk hunted more, I was like, that's, that was a wide open window, man. You got to take that shot. Yeah, the pine tree's covering the front leg, but you're not aiming for the front leg. I mean, I maybe would have nicked a, a very tip of a branch, but I think I would have. I still think I would have drilled them. So you were kicking th- myself. This was with a rifle? No, bow. Oh, bow Four, on this one. 40 yard bow shot. You know, I might have accidentally, like, might have nicked one pine like yeah. tip but 40 yards and you know i have plenty of long on an elk so it's such a big target you don't realize how big they are until you get out there we helped a guy pack out an elk and i i mean i was just shocked with i mean it was a cow and i'm just like i mean you see the pictures you see the, the movies but you get up next to you like this is a very big critter and it's so they have a, a decent window i mean that is the nice part about it is it's you've got a big target to aim at which is nice so yeah so I think I left one on the table there. It was like 5.30 in the last night, and I was like, man, I don't want to get into a wild goose chase. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, it was, we decided that wasn't the unit for us, but definitely loved elk hunting and have done it every year since. Nice. Can you bring us up through to how you were able to get your first elk? So kind of what was that process, and, and how did you get your first one down? I see a picture behind you, so I know at some point you've, you've had some success here. So tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, so that was um, that's a North Dakota bull, but that I shot in 2019. So 2016 to 2019, I did three or four other archery elk hunts, and a lot of lessons learned, man. I mean, archery elk hunting is a continual humbling experience. Yeah, and so it's learning the wind and learning elevation and how to find elk and call is huge. I mean, I got really good at bugling and, and call calling. I'm not competition worthy, but I definitely can get some elk sounds out and get some responses. And so that was a big one, but just understanding where elk are and what they're going to be doing. So we can base what we want to do off of that. So elk ecology really is what helped us get better and better at finding elk and getting in on them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've missed elk. I, I had an opportunity that um, two years later in Montana uh, elk was coming down. I was on top of a ridge and he was coming underneath me and I was so the timing was bad and I had a single pin sight at the time and everything had to go on. And I was just thinking like, I got to arrange this cause it's such a steep drop and I didn't get it all done in time. And he went through my gap and went on his merry way. And looking back, I knew what it was. I was like, put the 40 on his heart and the 30 on his lungs and drill him. And it was a 35 yard adjustment. So I should have you know, you got to have a little bit of that killer instinct. And my, me and my brother talk about this a lot. Some people just don't have it. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't have it. You know, I let two bulls walk that I should have killed at that yeah. time. My brother's got it. He's killed five with his bow. I mean, he's he's just, he has luck mixed with that killer instinct and it, he gets the job done. Yeah. And so the next two days later on that same trip to Montana, I had a bull at 50 yards and this time I did, I've been kicking myself for two days and it was a nice bull too, a six by six, probably not quite 300, but a nice bull. So I had another raghorn at 50 yards. And after thinking about everything I was going to do perfect this time, I nailed it. I ranged him. I adjust my dial. I drew back. I stopped him with a, a nervous grunt 
touched off. There was a branch four inches in front of my arrow, but so close I didn't see it in my sight housing. And my arrow hit that branch and went 30 feet over his back. I mean, it was laughable how far I missed. Oh, man. And so the bull, like, startles and looks back, and my brother steps out behind me and whacks him. So (laughs) So your brother got him. (laughs) My brother got him, yeah. He drove – he ran – I would say 800 yards straight back to the four wheeler. Yeah. So we only had like a 700 yard pack out through an open Valley. I mean, we could see the four wheeler from where we deboned them or quartered them. Yeah. It was crazy. I want to go back to something you said, cause I think it's so um, it's easily missed the, the killer instinct. You talk about developing that. How did I've got to admit that I think that I have not had it. It's not natural for me. Um, and then it's, there's been times where I've snapped into that mode and I've started to turn it on, but I, I go, always go back to one particular hunt where a buck was coming a whitetail hunt. And I had this buck coming, I was doing an interview, looking at the camera, talking about how I hadn't seen any bucks that year. And all of a sudden you see me look to the left. I'm like, there's a buck. And I had time to video him. I had everything. And there's a perfect 30 yard gap right in front of me. And I had the camera on him and then he steps into the gap. And at a certain point I'm like, why is my hand still on the camera? Why haven't I drawn my bow? And I go to draw my bow and he looks up and I can't get, I never got drawn on that buck. I'm like, what the heck was I doing? It was like, I, I just, there wasn't the killer instinct. And then from that time on, I've tried to develop, how, how have you developed that? How have you, if you don't have it, how do you get it? I think practice repetition. And, and so, you know, this is kind of a new question I've never specifically been asked, but just thinking through it, I think the way most of us come up as hunters maybe makes it more difficult to have that killer instinct. So, right. So let's walk through an experiment. You know, you're 12 years old, you're in the stand with your dad and he is doing everything he can to have a good experience for you. Right. He's waiting until it's like a doe at 40 yards. The wind is perfect. It's not um, alerted at all. And then you shoot it with a rifle and you're like, okay, slam dunk. Got it. And then you start hunting and a lot of people grow up hunting with guns and firearms. And so you get used to like, 100 yards with the rifle, 50 yards with the shotgun, it's a done deal. Open food plots, cut lanes. You know, if that's you growing up, you get very comfortable with that. Well, when you, you transition to bow hunting, it's not the same. I mean, nothing's almost a guarantee. They can drop your arrow. I've had does duck my arrow at 28 yards, and I'm shooting a really fast bow. Mm-hmm. I've had deer catch you drawing all the time. I mean, that happens all the time. And so it's a definitely it's a different thing to build that killer instinct of knowing what you can and can't get away with knowing what shots you can and can't make the variables that, you know, wind, um, you know, is it too windy for an arrow flight? How to adjust for a slight wind is the deer going to send me all that stuff. It's a huge step up when you go from like whitetail rifle hunting to archery hunting whitetails. Then you go to the mountains and everything changes. There's no more lanes. These animals are experts at sensing you and, and getting away from you. They're huge. They come in fast. Your heart rate's elevated. You're hiking. You're sore and tired or miserable and sweating and hot and all these different things are going on at once. And now you're trying to get the job done. It's a huge another leap up. And so it's hard to develop that killer instinct to just knowing what you can and can't get away with. Cause we grew up taking, you know, canned shots with, with firearms at 50 yard deer in a food plot. You know, there's nothing that you got all day to shoot this thing. I mean, most of the time, some people are different, but it's, it's a lot different. So I think just repetition, shoot as many things with the bow as you can take hunt with your bow, shoot a lot of does, fill your doe takes, shoot bucks with their bow, go on stocks. 
it, it just repetition and you start to get better at knowing what works and what doesn't building that self-confidence. I think it really is rooted in confidence, not yeah. cockiness, but confidence that I can make this shot confidence that I know, even if I nick that pine branch, I'm going to kill that elk. Yeah. That's good, man. That's really good. I, I think you've got to go from hoping that it happens and wishing that it happens to having confidence that it will. I think there's been times where I'm like, I'm going to make this shot. And, you know, it's easier on a doe uh, for me. I, I've made it, you know, I've killed a couple of nice bucks, uh, respectable, but it's, and in those moments, it's just like trying to hold it together and making sure that you're just not, uh, you know, making a quick, it, it, the process. So for this elk trip, one of the things I've tried to do is not just stand at 40 yards directly from my target and take the shot. Like I do that a lot, but sometimes I like my kids place at making sure my kids are inside. I'll, I'll take a shot through like the swings you know, between that yeah. or I've climbed up on the roof um, of my house, climbed out the window and taken some shots from the elevation just to practice these scenarios. Uh, even the other day, I, I did like 10 push-ups, made myself out of breath, jumped up, held my bow back. And I told my wife, you tell me when to fire. So I'm sitting there holding my bow. She made me hold it for like 45 seconds. And in Montana, they have that 80% let off rule. So it's a lot harder to hold back than what it's ever been. But taking that shot, I think that's super solid advice that you're giving because it's you've got to develop that. Yeah, not many people are born with it. And if they are, then maybe that's a different concern. Um, but yeah, it's it's just something that I don't think we do much in our daily life. Like we built life around comfort and that's not a comfortable place to be when you're yeah. your adrenaline is racing, your heartbeat's racing, you're you're physically maybe exhausted or or breathing heavy, and now you gotta do the opposite of all those things and calm down, settle down. Mm-hmm think through a, a thought process of draw, hold, aim, slow release. It, it's those two conflicting things going on there. And, and it, you just got to practice that it's whatever you can. I like to shoot like my farthest shots with my bow first arrow out. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, here I can get to about 49 yards in my yard. So like my first arrow will be 49 yards cold. And then, then I might go to 20 or 30 or 40, whatever distance I need to work at, but trying to re- get any sort of replicating that, that feeling of like, Ooh, man, this might not work. That a little bit of adrenaline I think is helpful. Yeah. That's good. So one other question regarding your story, uh, is your brother, are you guys competitive? Has he harassed you about missing that, that bull and he getting hit or is it just kind of like he let it go? No. Um, he doesn't harass me on that bull for sure. Cause his shot was not good at all. <laughs> there you go. Um, and so he knows not to push that one too far. Our, that bull, ironically, our, almost everyone in our group got to shoot at it because it was not we, – we needed to track it and, and finish it, but it was in, like, this thicket of woods. And so every one of us got a shot at it because we kept mm-hmm. hitting trees and, yeah. and we couldn't get clear shots to, to put a finishing arrow in. And, and eventually we did. But, um, yeah, so that's the, the group joke is that we tag out on trees now. <laughs> cool. So going on from there, Brian, uh, kind of bring us up to uh, the next year. What, what happens next? How do, you, how do you get your first one? Yeah. I mean, the next year for me was pretty uneventful. We went to Wyoming as a, as a larger group of seven. And we sh- my brother shot an elk with me pinned behind a, a pine tree again. Um, so we got into a calling sequence, thought it would be a good spot to call. And so he says, you know, I'm going to call you. Go over here a little bit. And uh, so I take like three steps behind this giant pine tree. I've never seen a pine tree bigger than this thing. I swear it could have made it to Rockefeller. And so I'm like two steps right smack dab behind it. And he goes, elk. 
what do you mean? Yeah, we're doing a setup. He's like, no, there's one right there. Like we haven't even started calling it. And there's a raghorn walking at 50 yards and I'm done. Like I can't, I can't see anything. This pine tree is so wide. It's obstructing like 90 degrees of my vision. Oh man. And so I'm like, all right, I guess I'm calling. And so I start doing a couple call calls. He brings them in to 40 yards. My brother shoots them, piles up at 80. I mean, it was a, it was a nice raghorn four by four. Not like I'm super bummed, but kind of bummed. Like yeah. that's just my luck, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, we we bugled a lot of bulls, and on that trip, I think that was the trip we were in the mid 30s. We had like 35 ish bulls that we bugled into 60 yards, but we only got shots at two because of the jungle aspect, and you know, no one's out there trimming lanes for you. But it was a great hunt, great temperatures, lots of action across the group, and and so just another good time out in the elk woods you know you're really going elk hunting for the experience not to punch a tag if you do that's gravy on top but but yeah that was the next year and then that spring i got drawn for the once in a lifetime north dakota elk tag nice yeah so a little known fact north dakota's got some of the biggest elk in the country i mean legitimate 400 inches are roaming every year um, I had phone scope video throughout that year of a 380 to 390 class seven by eight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Some monster elk, but it takes a long time to draw. It's like three quarters of a percent chance and there's no point system. Oh man. Wow. And I drew on my first time. I, I, the year before was my first year of residency and eligibility. I forgot the deadline and missed it. So the second year I applied and I got that result and I opened up the email and it's the big three are sheep, elk, and moose in North Dakota. And so the sheep draw is in September and the elk and moose are in April. And so it says submitted successful and successful. And for some reason I had like the one time in my life that I've had dyslexia, I couldn't figure out this table. I'm just looking at it and it doesn't make sense to me. And like all these things are like successful, unsuccessful, submitted and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, I must have accidentally applied for a cow tag because the cow is like one in three chance. Yeah. And so I sure enough, I look and no, it's legit. I got the bull or the any elk and it's the unit I wanted. And so now I'm running on cloud nine. I mean, this is there's a legitimate chance to shoot a 350 class bull in this unit. And the success rates are 64 percent. And that's amongst all hunters. Mm-hmm. And most people are never elk hunted in their life they just apply because it's their home state they might be 60 by the time they get drawn i mean to have a 64 percent chance at a yeah, public land elk that's huge is huge and then you have to act those factors in like usually out west you're talking to people that are like dedicated elk hunters like they're going here for a reason they've done it before and then even then it's only 10 15 percent on do-it-yourself hunts mm-hmm. and so i was jacked and so I told the, the elk hunting group, like, hey, if I'm available, I'll go to Montana, but I'm prioritizing North Dakota. And it was an any weapon from September 6th through the end of the year. Really? Yeah. So I could use any weapon I wanted for that whole season. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to use a rifle because North mm-hmm. Dakota is really open and I'm going to rifle hunt the rut, which I was really excited about. And I spent 16 days that summer out there glassing, sleeping on my truck the toolbox in my truck or tents and, and just living out there, following elk, uh, getting them on the spotting scope and just making the most of the whole experience. And it was really fun. And then season opened up and I was trying to get back on that seven by eight that I had seen. And I got a couple of videos of, he was a, an absolute monster. I sent him to a couple of guides out in Utah that specialize in giant elk, like 400 inch elk. 
and I said, Hey man, I'm, you know, I'm pretty new to scoring big elk. You know, I can tell you if this is a 250 or a 300, but you know, can you score this for me? Cause I keep coming at like near 400 and I know how rare that is. So am I like way off? And he goes, and every time I look at him, he gets bigger. I mean, I think he's high three eighties to high three nineties for sure, man. I'd stay on him every day you can. And I spent seven days trying to find him again. And I just couldn't, I wasn't seeing him anywhere. I was trying to hit up different angles of where he was and different viewpoints and valleys near there. And he just wasn't coming up. Mm. And we had the, a cold spell come through on September 7th with some rain. And then the September 8th was supposed to be clear or like not raining, cloudy, but significantly colder. It went from like 80 to 50. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, I can't miss September 8th with a giant cold front. I mean, their elk are going to be bugling. I got to go find a different area. And so I was going to go to this other side of the unit and this, I was going to drive right past where I shot this bull. And I remember this summer we saw a huge herd of cows right in this area. Private was on the right. Public was on the left. The cows were on private, but now it's the rut. They're going to be all over the place. Why am I driving by this spot to go hunt someplace I've never been before? So I pull off the road, get out of the truck. It's getting a little late because the roads were like clay and wet and I was, it was like an hour and a half drive from where I was camping to that side of the unit. And so I take like five steps from the truck at just as shooting lights opening up. Like I'm way behind for the mm-hmm. average elk hunt, right? I should have been two hours ahead of that, but I hear something that sounds like a bugle back behind me on private. I'm like, well, I don't know if there's a bugle back there. Maybe I should just respond and maybe there'll be one in front of me. So I bugle back and kind of just thinking about my day and you know, how long I might take to hear something and where I'm going to go. And like 30 seconds later, really loud bugle right in front of me. And it's open, like very open. This is like, I would say like grassland foothills with some shrubbery in the, in the valleys, but you know, broken country, the badlands. Yeah. So I'm like, Oh shit. Like he's close. (laughs) And so I take off running over the couple ridges, trying to catch up to him, trying to do my best to guess where he is and, and get a viewpoint on him. And I go up and over a couple of ridges and I see two elk on the, on the next ridge, right? They're just going over the next ridge and they look back at me and it's two raghorns. I went, ah, oh, man, you know, I had a, I had a, for this hunt, I had a higher bar than I usually do for elk hunting. I'm like, ah, oh, man, it's just a raghorn. Yeah, that's still cool. So I, I pull over the camera and I, I, I hunt with a camera on my backpack strap. Okay. Because I have, you know, desires to be a professional photographer, but this, nor the skills, neither the time to do it. But I'm taking pictures of these elk and I have a telephoto lens so I can get pretty close to their face. And I'm hearing this bugle while I'm taking these pictures. I'm like, how cool is this that I'm photographing these bulls that are bugling? And then it hits me. Neither one of them are moving their head. I'm like, oh boy, I'm looking at the wrong bull. So quick, put the camera away and take off again because the bull that's been bugling isn't either one of those raghorns. So up and over the ridges I go again, and I finally catch up to this herd that's kind of working through some sparse cedars, and I'm and I set up 400 yards away. I was I was uh, I was kind of locked down. I don't know what the proper term for it is because it's kind of weird talking about archery hunting. You talk about the window, right? They got to right. come into the window. Well, I was windowed at 400 yards because that's how open it was. I couldn't get any closer. Mm. And through the tops of the cedars, I see his fourths and fifths just destroying the cedar tree just raking it and just this poor tree is probably dead for sure. But I could see enough of his fourths and fifths that I'm like, Oh, this is a big bull. 
Yeah. And so I text my brother and I said, I got a shooter at 400 yards working a tree, no shot yet. And he's in church at the time. It's a Sunday morning. And he texts me back. He's like, well, how big is it? I said, well, it, you know, he's got 10 inch fourths. And my brother is like 10 inch fourths. That doesn't seem like a shooter. You know, that's not that big of a bull. And I'm like, oh, sorry, 10 inch fifths. And I, I said it wrong. And he goes, oh, damn, that's much different. Because yeah. right? you can get a 300-inch bull without a, much of a fifth at all. Yeah. And so 45 minutes, I was locked up on him in the scope, watching his tips rake this tree. His cows were kind of feeding through, and they were all walking about 350 in the open. I had a good shot at every one of these cows. And so he would bugle. I'd see some fur moving through. And I'm like, oh, here we go. Safety's off, up on him, cow. And we went through that like five or 10 times a cow would walk out and I'd had to be ready for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm calling and cow calling back and forth. I had a a decoy set up beside me, which I wouldn't recommend calling from behind a decoy, but this is, you know, North Dakota, there's not a lot of hunters. It's open. I'm wearing blaze orange. So yeah, I wasn't too concerned about getting shot, but I wouldn't do that in a normal (laughs) over the counter unit in archery season to call from behind a decoy when there's rifle hunters running around. Right. And so eventually i see him come out he's it is him this time so the fire drill is for real and he came out about 375 and i I shot and when i got back on him he was tumbling down this face that he was on probably 30 40 feet just tumbling and that instant relief that you feel when you see an animal go down hit me and i'm like oh man it's done well he piles up in the bottom in a couple of like aspen little saplings and I see trees and legs and tines flying all over the place. And all of a sudden he stands back up. And I'm like, oh, all right. I guess we can play this game. And so I reload and I'm shooting a 300 short mag, 200 grain bullets. I mean, these are little tanks flying through the air. And so I reload, I shoot, and he just kind of looks like, like if your small child hits you, you kind of like, you barely even move. Like you could barely even tell he was hit. But I definitely contacted him. He keeps walking right towards me. So I reload again and shoot. Same thing, just boom, and just keeps walking towards me. And by now he's covered about 50 yards, and he turns broadside again. And so I reload, and I'm like aiming for a double lung, and I shoot, and then he just drops his back end and tips over. And it's like, oh, I forgot to adjust for that 50-yard difference he just covered, and I, I hit him in the spine. And then he was, he was done relatively fast after that. And that the whole the funny thing is I watched him go down. I could see him from where I'm at, which isn't common, even for whitetail hunters. You usually shoot them and they run away into the woods and die, and then you had a blood trail. Well, I saw him. I can see him right now. So I took a picture through him through my my scope and called my dad, my brother, and my girlfriend, and everyone. My brother answered the phone in the middle of his church service. <laughs> he was texting my cousin who was across the congregation. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, like that's great. You gotta go. and so it was a great experience walking up on this bull i mean i remember it to this day i had been thinking about starting a beard oil company and i was making them for myself but i was struggling with two things um taxes how to collect sales tax and what do i need to do for taxes and what to name the business i didn't even know what the name would be so i kept telling myself how could you possibly be a successful business owner if you can't even name your business and i walked up to this bull and he was he was laying on his right side and it was wet and his, his fur was beaded up into like dreadlocks. 
And I remember looking at that dark fur on his neck and it looked like just gnarly and, and manly and, and just rugged. And yeah. I was like, bull elk beard oil. That's what it's going to be. It just hit me in that second of what, what I was going to name it. And I was so clear and convicted that I was going to do it in that one moment. And that's when bull elk beard oil, my first business started really is that moment. Nice. Yeah. And it turned out he was a, you know, he was a big boy. He's a 354 inch six by six. Heck yeah. Yeah. Huge body. I mean, these North Dakota bulls, they don't have wolves. They don't have grizzly bears. They have corn and wheat to eat. Very low hunting pressure. It's a beautiful little mix that grows some giant elk. And so his body was insane. I remember looking at his neck. I mean, he's mounted right, right down the hall. He's, he's peeking in the window to my office really is what it is. And, uh, I remember his neck looked like like the state fair hogs. Yeah. You look at them and you can see like both of their loins. Yeah. And it's just like it's just like a table. Their backs are like tables. His neck was like that wide. Mm. That was insane. And so I called my dad. He came out. He was he was in the area four wheeling with my mom at the time, just to be there with me kind of, but he wasn't hunting. And so they came out and they got to see him and dad helped me break him down and and then we packed him out. I packed Dad did one trip. He's a little bit older, so he doesn't do a lot of weight. He did like the stakes, the back straps. Mm-hmm. So that was each back strap was 20 pounds. No. Oh, wow. And so he did 40 pounds, but the rest of the meat I packed out that day by myself. It was about a mile and a quarter each way. So I did it once hunting with like a 40 pound pack because I had a camera and food. And, and then I came out to get them and then I brought them in and we butchered them. And so the first trip I did a rear and a front. And then we packed that out while well, dad carried his bag and then mom doesn't do much hiking at all. So I gave her my hiking stick and let her kind of just do her own thing. And it worked out that we, mom was actually the fastest because I had a double load and dad had a load, but we're all pretty close to the same time, which worked out pretty well. And then I went back alone for the rest of the trips. And I did the first, you know, like I said, the first one I did a rear and a front, the next trip I did a front and the rest of the neck trimmings, which the, the, each side of his neck meat and his like neck roasts were like 20, 25, 30 pounds a piece. The tenderloins were five pounds a piece. I weighed it all when I got home because I was just interested. Yeah. And then the last trip of meat, I did the rear quarter. So by this time I had done, I think four or five trips total. Man, I bet you're spent. <laughs> yeah. And was, by now it's like, I was on a clock, like I was hustling, but it was still taking me about an hour and a half, two hours round trip to get in load up get out go back well i still had this head and this hide to deal with and my plan was to finish up with that get the meat out first i had a freezer in my truck full of ice get the meat cool and taken care of and then i'll go get the head and my gosh that head was so heavy and i'm not trying to brag about how big he was but his his hide was it was wet and i probably saved enough hide to mount too well because i was so worried about it yeah. And so there was tons of weight in there and the head was just a goofy shape and it weighed like, I want to say it was like 180, maybe even a little bit more when I weighed the whole pack frame oh when I got home gosh. and wow. but, and also poorly, it was very poorly weighted and distributed. So I, to stand up, I had to roll over on my stomach and crawl to the edge of this flat. He died in like a little washout flat and I had to start crawling up the bank until I hit an angle where I could stand up. I just could, I couldn't get up otherwise. And once I did get up, I had to stand at 
almost a 90 degree angle just to balance it and then start walking and i'd take like 10 yards and my my hip flexors and my legs would just be on fire and i'm like i'm not going to make it a mile doing this and so i i set them down and i was like ah screw it i'll come back tomorrow and get it <laughs> there's no bears there's no wolves i'm not worried about it no one's going to find them and so we came back the next day with the ranger which is frowned upon by the local game and fish but ranchers do it all the time and it had just rained for three days. So I wasn't too worried about starting a fire and I was, I was willing to, to suck it up and pay the fine if I got caught. Yeah. Instead of like paying chiropractor bills for the next 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Or hiring horses. I thought about that, but I didn't know anyone with horses in the local area. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was the bull. I mean, his hindquarters weighed 82 pounds a piece. His fronts were 64 pounds a piece. It was crazy how so big that animal your was. Your first bull is the bull of a lifetime hunt. That is just really awesome. Yep. Yeah, it was a big, it was a big bull. Um, and then, yeah, that's just a great experience. I, I, you can't say enough about the state of North Dakota and the way they manage their wildlife to, to give opportunities like that. I know not everybody gets some, some people pass away, unfortunately, before they get the chance to, to go out on those once in a lifetimes, but it was a great, great experience. Oh, that's cool, man. Ryan, what a story. That's awesome. Yeah. And what's, what's neat to me about it, too, is I think I've actually heard of your beard oil company, um, So, which I'm starting to grow my beard. It needs some work. It's not as awesome as yours, but I'm starting to grow it again for this trip, so I might have to look into that. But awesome. the fact that you got a business, uh, you know, a name out of that, that's pretty, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah, the name. I mean, I was spending lots of time driving. It was like four hours out west, probably five by the time I'd actually get into the Badlands and camp. And so I was lots of windshield time, lots of podcasts, lots of thinking about how I wanted to start something, right? I don't want to retire from a 40 years in a cubicle and get my gold watch. Like I want to build something and maybe take it to the point where I can step away from my day job and, and focus on it full time and maybe have a little bit more of that freedom and flexibility of like I own my time. Like, yeah, I need to work and I, I'll probably work more than 40 no matter what, but I, I own it. I know what I'm doing with it and I can decide you know, no, this is a priority or that's a priority, or maybe I got a wife that needs something that day and I take an afternoon to help her with that or kids that need to mm -hmm. run somewhere. Definitely just always had that desire to start something. So yeah, it all kind of came together really nicely in that one moment. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about is your, your podcast. So you have a, a podcast called two bucks podcast, you go to two bucks.com or on Apple or wherever uh, you get podcasts. Tell me about you know, from beard oil to the podcast and the brand and all of that, that's kind of came kind of walk us through uh, what you do with that. Yeah. So I did the bull elk beard oil, you know, the moment I decided to do it was September 8th, 2019, but we didn't actually launch until May 1st, 2020. Mm -hmm. And now it's just all learning, you know, how to package and bottle and label product, how to ship, how to build websites, how to do taxes, how to set up a DBA. It took a long time. Mm -hmm. And I could have gone faster. You know, I had a day job. I had a relationship, the holidays, family, hunting, shed hunting for sure. It takes time. And so, I, I, you know, I didn't do it as hard as I could have. But then, you know, I've been doing it for about two years now. And through that, I've learned so many things. But primarily what I found was how daunting it seemed to start something that was unknown. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of time to learn. But now looking back, it, it's almost like it was... um a waste of mental energy worrying about how hard it would be because it's it's so easy when you learn how to build a website to build another it's so easy to set up a business when you've already done it once 
it's so easy to learn how to ship orders and label things and all this stuff when you've already done it once. And, and that got me thinking, you know, how many people out there spend their lives thinking about their passions instead of doing them? How many of, of them are worried about the unknowns or the self-doubt? And that's why they don't ever pull the trigger and start their own whatever it is. Yeah. And so that's why I started Two Bucks Podcast is to share stories from other outdoor entrepreneurs to help inspire and motivate people and help them build confidence in themselves and in their idea to, to take that step, to pull the trigger and start their whatever it is, whether it's, you know, underwater basket weaving or bull elk beard oil or a content services products. If you're happy about it, I'm happy for you. And I want to help you do it. I want to give you the lessons learned and the tips and tricks stories from other people that have done it so that you can launch and hopefully be successful. And I'd love to have people that listen to the podcast and because of that decided to do their company and build it and then reach out and become a guest on the podcast to have that full circle moment Uh and to help support, you know, outdoor entrepreneurs as well. You know, obviously if I build a a big enough platform, maybe one day it'll start to actually help out their numbers and drive some people their way. So that's where I started the, the podcast and we've been up and running for about two weeks now. I love that, man. That is awesome. I I think it's so good. I think fear really cripples a lot of people's dreams and their plans. Um, You know, and I think it's, it's one of those things like for this, this podcast, for example, I thought about this for a long time. I just been in my head, been in my head and it's just daunting. Like how do you start a podcast? But there's this wonderful thing called Google. Um, (laughs) And, but the problem with Google is that it sends you a thousand. There's so many ways to do the same thing. So what's awesome about your podcast is being able to hear from other people what they've done and just kind of getting some ideas. I think that's so needed because there's a lot of great ideas out there, but they've never been acted upon because of fear, worry, the unknown. And so, um, yeah, love that. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there like, like Joe Rogan says on his podcast, men lead lives of quiet desperation. Hmm. Like they're, you know, they go to the office and they're not happy about it. They're dissatisfied. That spills into other aspects of their life. And it's not just men, women too, obviously are, they have things that they're not satisfied by. And, and I think not everybody, but a lot of people like building their own things. They like starting their own stuff. And that is a lot of times it's business. When you start talking about livelihood and earning a living, you know, I think a lot of people would enjoy building their own business, but maybe just don't know how or don't know where to start. Or like you don't, they don't know what podcast equipment they really need. Google told them they needed a $4,000 soundboard. And another guy said he needs a pair of earbuds. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I want to do is help shorten that learning curve, help people feel confident in themselves. And, and if that's what they want to do, I want people to take that chance and then have somebody that's willing to support them, have them on. If, you know, if someone's coming out with a new product, I want to have them on as a guest and help help them promote their new product or their new launch or whatever it is. Mm, that's awesome, man. Love yeah. that. Well, I think we've got time. If you've got time, uh, you said before we started recording this, that there was two elk. So I'd love to hear the difference between a hunt of a lifetime and maybe a, another elk story. Yeah. So this is uh the second one was a Colorado bull rifle. Again, what was unique about this hunt was I started building points across the West and started building a point tracker but the state of Colorado switched their point tracking system in 2019, 2020 timeframe. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And so I bought one in 2019 and then I logged in in 2020 to buy my second point and it said I had five. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, that's weird. Checked it a few weeks later. Still had five. Huh. A few weeks later. I'll have to call them. I don't think that happened for me. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm like, I'm expecting these to go away. Like an email, like, Hey, we noticed you had five points. You really don't. We'll fix it. You know, we'll take them away. Mm-hmm. Well, a few weeks later, two things happened. We start talking about the elk hunting group for the upcoming fall. And we got seven people and Wyoming has a, a uh, five or six point limit. I think it's six in Wyoming, five in Montana. So Wyoming has a six party limit. We had seven, which mm. is a problem. And we didn't have enough points to split our group in two. If we did that, likely nobody would draw. If we were all together, we could, everyone could draw. So that happened. And I was veteran enough in the group that I would have been in the main team because we mm. had added a couple of people and you know, the way it goes, you know, the, the people that started and have been tenured, are in and if you want to add others if we have room we'll let you come but if we don't you're the first to get chopped right well at the same time i had a good friend announce his wedding date and asked me to be in his wedding and it was september 19th or september 18th oh man and you know it's that age-old question like do you go to the wedding or do you not well if it's just me being invited to maybe a distant friend i'd definitely skip this year i'm skipping one to go on a 10-day elk hunt because it's just a wedding that i could attend not be in but it's a good friend of mine and he's asking me to be in his special day right yeah. there's other elk hunts and so i was like well what a great opportunity our whole group can't go to wyoming anyway i have a wedding that i'm in and i have five points in colorado which is the the threshold for a great hunt mm-hmm. but it's not yet to an awesome hunt and to get to that awesome hunt is 12 points and by the time you get there it's probably 15 so it's like do Point i waste great, yeah. 10 years and the fact that they might find out they gave me four extra points or do I just capitalize on this whole situation brewing? And I said, you know what guys, I'll skip the Wyoming hunt. I'm going to go to Colorado. I got a second rifle tag with my five points and I headed out on my own to an Alpine second rifle Colorado hunt to a unit I've never been to uh, a state that I've never hunted in. And so I got there and I had a great game plan. I, I saw a beautiful bull in a herd the morning before season. I got there one day early to scout, set up my camp. I was super excited. First morning was brutally windy, like 40-mile-an-hour winds, and that bull was up high on a bald ridge. I'm like, I don't really want to go up there today. That's really windy. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to shoot or, you know. So I decided to go up the bottom on the other side of the mountain and didn't really learn much, but during that day, the weather turned south and we we're supposed to get varying reports of somewhere between like, I don't know, it seems like six to 60 inches of snow, the way those mountain reports go. I think it was actually, they were forecasting like 12 to 18 in the valley, which means like potentially a lot more up in the mountains. And so I was like, ah, oh, man, that I'm by myself. I have one vehicle I'm tenting. So I decided to pull camp down. I was only there one night pack it up in my truck, head out of the mountains and just sleep in my truck until the storm rides through and then see how bad it is and if I can get back in. And it turned out we only got like 6 to 12 inches of standing snow plus some drifting. And the roads were fine. We could get through with the trucks, but I just didn't really want to set the tent back up in the snow. So I just slept in my truck for the rest of the week. I slept across the back seat, and it was cold, like 13 below. But I had a good bag and good gear, and I was able to do it. The Game and Fish Warden uh, stopped me one night and was like, are you sleeping here tonight? I'm like, yeah, is that fine? He's like, oh, I don't care, but man, it's cold. Like, you know, it's going to be really cold tonight. Right. And I'm like, I, I think I'll handle it. He's like, well, if you get cold, just go to town and get a hotel. No one, don't be too brave to die out here. <laughs> and so 
he let me go and I was glassing. I was driving actually out of the mountain across the valley and up into the foothills of the next unit to yeah. glass back into my unit and get on the elk. Right. It was about seven miles, but I found that herd. And eventually I was able to get on them in the morning. You know, I, I scouted a couple of times and then kind of figured out the pattern, got up in there in the morning, did like a half stock only to realize another party was ahead of me by about a half hour coming from a different angle. And I was like, well, they beat me. They get first dibs. I'm going to set myself up so when they take their shot, the herd might run past me and I could get a second shot. Mm-hmm. And there's a nice bowl with really splayed out thirds, like 20-inch thirds in that in that herd that I was looking at. And for whatever reason, they got to like 100 yards from these elk and didn't shoot, and all of a sudden the herd busted them and ran away. Oh, man. Like, What's going on? Sure enough, they ran way out of my range, like 800 yards. But I saw where they went down, and they didn't come out of that. So I went down. I was like, all right, I'm going to hunt this area tonight. I think they're in that cut. Now, I don't, I'm not going to be able to find them because it's all black timber, but I'm going to come back here this afternoon. So I went out, got a subway, came back in after lunch, climbed up in there. Sure enough, they start feeding out into this valley. But, at, like, again, I'm windowed at 1,000 yards. It's an open oak scrub brush in between us, and it's still sunny out. And so I'm sitting on this rock, just plain as day, out in the open from a thousand yards, watching all these elk. And there's a couple of raghorns. That big bull isn't out, but a couple of raghorns are making their way. And finally, it's like seven days now that I've been up in the mountains by myself. And that's a mental battle on its own to be out hunting alone. And I'm like, this is make or break. This is the time I need to do something. And so as soon as the shadow hit me, of the setting sun i said when that shadow hits me it might be just enough difference in like visual cover that i can maybe sneak through this oak brush in the shadow and so i said as soon as that shadow hit me i started crawling down over my ledge into the little little draw into the oak scrub brush and i'm making all kinds of noise that stuff is so loud to walk through it's you know dead oak branches that you're walking through and i'm like 600 yards from these elk in the open like i'm just looking at them and every once in a while they lift their head but they don't really react and so i'm just making my way getting closer getting closer inching closer get to about 425 from one of those raghorns and i'm laying with my back up against an opposite slope trying to shoot you know up so i'm laying on my back shooting which is not a shooting stance that most people (laughs) think of like lay on your back and shoot up yeah that was the angle i had And so I get on this raghorn, I take the safety off, and out of the corner of the scope, I see a big tine. And I'm like, oh, what's that? And so I look up, that big bull had came out in the meantime as I was setting up. But he was a little bit farther away. He's about 445, 450 with my true ballistic range, so he's probably closer to 510 actual distance. But I was just like, you know what? I've practiced 500-yard shots. I feel pretty confident. He's broadside. I got 10 minutes of daylight. Let's send around downrange. So I pull the trigger. Nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. None of the elk move. They all just stare at me. Like, well, that's not good. Reload. Now there's a cow or a calf's head right over the heart of my bull, about 20 yards short. And so I started doing like calculated decisions on like what's my drop between 450 and 500 and am I going to could I go over that calf's head? 
But then I thought about people that shoot like really close to things and they still like the percussion gets them. I'm like, ah, that that does not sound like a good idea. And so I wait for like 30 seconds for this calf to move and none of the elk are moving. And finally he moves enough where I can shoot again and I shoot and like nothing. A couple elk start maybe wandering off the side. I'm just confused as all get out. Like there's no wind. I got the elevation. I reload again, shoot. And all of a sudden, that bull just tips over in his feet. He never took a single step. Wow. And then all the elk just bail. Yeah. And he just starts sliding down this face on his back. And the only thing I've learned about elk hunting is when elk start sliding down the mountain, that's not good. Like, that means it is steep. Yeah. And he's just sliding down this mountain. And finally, he stops, and I get over there. It's I pulled the trigger at 7 o'clock. It took me until 11 to finish quartering them by myself. And then it took me about 1230 to shuttle all of the quarters and all the loads down to this really old gold mining claim road that I thought I could maybe get my pickup up. But I'm I'm hunting with a full pickup, not like an ATV or a four-wheeler. And right. it snowed and stuff. And I'd never gone up there with my truck. I was just like, oh, it's kind of a two-track. Maybe I can just drive my truck right up to here. And so I shuttled all those loads about 300 yards, got done at 1.30, got back to the truck about 2 a.m. And this was 2 a.m. by yourself on a mountain in sub-zero temperatures where every single noise when you're that tired and that exhausted and in the dark sounds like a bear. (laughs) I even heard this groaning. I'm like, oh, man, that's a bear. That's got to be a bear. I'm worried. That's that's definitely a bear. And then I figured out I was leaning on the elk, and it was just air escaping from his lungs. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, 7.30 in the morning, I was up, had the whole bull loaded in the truck, and drove out that little gold claim and out of the mountains. And by, like, 8.30, the sun was starting to peek over the mountains, hitting me in that, that nice warmth, maybe eating up to about 30 degrees, and I was caping out my bull on the tailgate. So that's all. What did you find out about the shots? Did you hit them one time, three times? Two. I hit two in the, two in the bread basket. Yeah. I think like a heart and a long, I don't know what happened on the third shot. Gotcha. Wow. Man, what a story. That's awesome. Yeah. No, it's, I don't like taking long shots, but I've done it twice now. And so now it's just like, I practice for them as best I can and then try to shorten them as much as I can. Yeah. Man. And the, the I'm picturing the angle too, like laying on your back, taking a shot up over a hill. That's not one people probably practice very often at all. Yeah, I had a long bipod, the like the, the the Harris, the long version of the Harris bipod. Okay. And the butt of my rifle was actually on the ground. It wasn't on my shoulder. It was like touching the ground, and I was like looking down like this, trying to shoot uphill. Very strange angle for sure. Um, wouldn't recommend. <laughs> Would not recommend. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. So two bulls, and you're after it again this year, right? Yep. Last year we went out. Uh, my niece shot her first bull. Her boyfriend shot his first cow, and uh, we're me and my brother are going back this year with our bows. So really excited about that. Hopefully we have some good luck and, and maybe this will be the first year we've ever tagged out just because we only have two tags to fill. But yeah, we try to get to the West as much as possible. And and this year I have a lighter schedule, but next year we'll probably fill up those kind of secondary, maybe an antelope, maybe a mule deer or something like that. I try to, I try to get as much in as I possibly can. So. Absolutely, man. I I'm excited. I'm, 
ready for it. You got me jacked, uh, ready to go. Um, so it's it, it'll be here before I know it. And then the beauty for me, what I love about elk hunting is I come home and from the Ohio opener is that next weekend. You know, it's it's like uh, last. It's always the last Saturday in September, and then I've got white tails from September, the end of September, all the way to February that I can focus on. So that's that's the beauty of it. Yeah, for me, you know, whitetail archery season opens when we're at elk hunting, so we come back, hit the ground running, and then I love to add in maybe like an early October antelope hunt, and then maybe a mid October mule deer, mm-hmm. and then I typically like to do the uh, the traditional rut hunt back home at the farm and then you know last year we went out to montana after that for a rifle mule deer hunt right and just as much fun as you could possibly pack into one fall that's cool man brian i've enjoyed uh enjoyed getting to know you a little bit and hearing your stories i know we'll be out there roughly about the same time a little bit different spots but i wish you good luck on your your archery hunt there and uh i want to know how that goes so send me a text and we can see if uh have you back on the show to hear about your first archery uh, bull i think i'd love to hear that story yeah i'd love to be able to tell that story <laughs> i'll tell you mine too hopefully we'll see how that plays yeah out. yeah shoot me text to get me all fired up the week before yeah so uh two bucks podcast.com or wherever you get your podcast make sure you check out brian's podcast started listening i love it love the concept and i just want to say thanks again for coming on the show man yeah, anytime thanks for having me travis Man, Brian did a phenomenal job on those stories. Uh, good storyteller. Loved hearing about not only the stories, but just um, these companies, these things that he's doing uh, just to help other folks out. Really love that. And um, I think there was some good nuggets of information in there. Hopefully that's helpful to you. I got to say, <laughs> I don't know that I've thought a ton about this killer instinct thing. Um, a lot of times I've talked to Travis Shire and we, we've talked about the moment, like the moment of truth. And Travis said, you know, that he tries to be a killer in that moment. Like, you lock it in. And I got to say, there's just moments that I haven't had that. Um, I look at these other guys around, and, man, they just, like, this grit in their eye. They're ready. They draw back, and they find a way to get it done. And I haven't always had that. Maybe that's you, too. Like, you get in the moment, and you choke. Um, I've choked. I've made mistakes. Um, there's been some videos that I've posted, because I video my hunts, where I've gotten a lot of negative feedback, and and probably rightfully so. Made some bad mistakes on uh, some white tails, but also made some good ones. Um, made some great shots on some does, killed a couple bucks. And, you know, I, I look at it and it's just like, <laughs> I think social media and those things sometimes mess with us because it seems like everybody's a killer. But the reality is a lot of us probably maybe lack that, whatever it is, that ancient or that primal thing inside of us where all of a sudden we snap into it and we are ready to, to make a quick, clean kill. I'm trying to get better at that. But sometimes I feel like I'm lacking. Um, And it just makes me think that a lot of times in life, life is a comparison game. If you've ever gone to the gym, (laughs) you've experienced this. Uh, At least I have. You go into a gym and you walk in and you see these dudes that are just ripped. You know, they're spending all kinds of time. And you're like, man, I don't even want to try and lift my little wimpy barbells here because, you know, you feel so far behind, so lacking. Maybe you feel that in your job. You know, you don't have the skills needed to complete what you need to do or whatever it is. We always have these things where we're comparing ourselves to other people. I've even done that in my, my spiritual life, so to speak, where I look at some people and I'm like, man, they are so, like, like they're like, must be on like a mountaintop close to God. Like they are just like right up there. Like they, they, they seem to pray all the time and read their Bibles all the time. And they're just like this super Christian or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not that way. Like I still a little rough around the edges at times, still make some pretty dumb mistakes. And, 
And, and the point that I'm getting at is a lot of times we can just feel like we're <laughs> lacking, like we don't have what we need. And then I read a, a verse the other day that just absolutely hit me. I've been trying to get up in the mornings a little bit more, try and read my Bible more, and sometimes I'm not the most disciplined person. Kids going off to school, that's helped me a little bit, get a little bit extra free time. And and so I got into 2 Corinthians and was reading, and, and this verse just kind of stood out to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You see, what Paul was dealing with was people in the church, you know, Paul had gone there, planted this church, and he was their guy. Well, then these other guys came in, and these guys were like the super preachers. They were pretty impressive. They were, you know, slick. They, they delivered a really smooth message. And so whenever the people, they started to be a little confused about Paul. Like, Paul wasn't real fancy. Paul was pretty plain. In fact, he was... <laughs> Sometimes kind of annoying, like he talks about all this and he's he's trying to explain to them, like, guys, I'm just going to be flat honest, I'm not impressive to you, um, but I'm sufficient. And this, the reason I'm sufficient is not because of me, because of what Christ has done through me. So I want to unpack that just for a second, if you hang with me. There are times where we don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel like we have all the tools that we need. We feel like we don't have the killer instinct <laughs> in our life. And I feel that way a lot. But whenever I think about the fact that God, first off, loves me, no matter what I do, um, that His grace covers me, not only that, He has given me what I need. He's given me what I need to be sufficient in anything I, I face in life. We all love that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so often in that verse, we think about the first part, I can do all things. I can do it. If I just muscle down, if I just try harder, if I just read enough self-help books, if I just become the best version of me, I'm going to tell you this right now. The best version of you is not enough. It's not. It never will be. It can't be. (laughs) Cam Haynes isn't enough. Uh, Billy Graham isn't enough. Mother Teresa isn't enough. Any human on this planet isn't enough because we all have made mistakes. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory because of what God has done. What he's done and what Jesus has done for you, that's why we can stand and say, I'm enough. I'm sufficient. I have what I need. If you ever just feel like you're constantly pushing to be better, be more, and you just can't, this is the reason why. You're trying too hard on your own. You and of yourself, you're not. But, but the good news is, is that God has made you be that way through Jesus. That might be confusing to you, and if it is, I'd love to answer any question that I could. I don't have all the answers. I just have one major answer. would love to talk to you about that if, if that's something that just doesn't, just doesn't make any sense to you or sticks with you. Send me an email, sheddinglightod at gmail.com. Send a message, Facebook, Instagram, Shedding Light Outdoors. would love to talk to you. Uh, it, you're welcome to disagree with me on that, too. Uh, if you see that a different way or whatever, just send a message. We can dialogue back and forth. would love to talk to you about that, but... Guys, I want to say thank you so much for coming back for another episode. Um, And I hope that you'll come back next time. Uh, Might be able to squeeze in one more episode here uh, before the trip, but maybe the next time you hear this, uh, I'll be headed to Montana with my buddy Matt Dove, and we'll be talking about our strategy, what we're going to be doing. I hope to record that on the way out. And then hopefully on the way back, we have a pretty amazing story to tell. I'm sure we will either way, however it goes, but really looking forward to that. Guys, thank you so much for your support, for listening. Thank you for 
reviews, ratings, sharing, all that good stuff. And until next time, remember to shed the light.